welcome to Tripod, our travel retail themed video podcast series in association with the SEVA Group. I'm Martin Moody. I'm Roger Jackson. Roger, we have two of the most extraordinary developments in our industry, and I'm not overstating that at all, that are happening within the space of a few days. One is the opening of the much anticipated expansion project at Hamad International Airport. And just as we are speaking, I'm preparing to fly there um, for a media day and to walk the, the whole area, this vast area. It's going to be astonishing, I believe. And of course, a few days later, China Duty Free Group will be opening the equally much anticipated Heiko International Duty Free Complex in Hainan province. The world's biggest duty-free shop will be housed within that complex. And there's a whole lot more from leisure to entertainment to some spectacular digital visual effects. It's really going to be a game changer. I think both projects are, you're very close to the team at Qatar Duty Free and uh, you've been to Hamad International Airport many times. Uh, What are you hearing and what are you expecting? Um, so Martin, firstly, I agree. I think, you know, given where our industry's been and where we are now on the back of obviously TFWA CAM um, a couple of weeks ago, um, I think our industry's been in the best shape it's been for the last three years. I think, you know, with these two bits of news that you've just mentioned, it cements that also, you know, every week, I think it's a positive news story that's coming. Uh, of course, there's still some challenges, and of course, there will be some bumpy roads ahead, as there always has been with our industry, because we're a true global industry. Um, but I think we are in, you know, if you look at positive news, it just seems that everything is on an upwards trajectory. You mentioned Doha. I was really lucky enough to be there two weeks ago with Tab and the team, um, Beatrice and Santiago. And I got a chance to walk around the airport and see what was happening. Obviously, you know, it, it's not been fully opened yet and that'll happen next week. But truly what they're doing from both a retail space and an airport space is just absolutely phenomenal. When people get to see this and experience it themselves, I think they're going to be really, really surprised. And obviously we've got the World Cup uh, in Qatar starting in 35 days today, actually. Um, so not only, you know, a, a frequent visitor is going to see it, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of people flying into Doha and into the region who are going to get to see the, you know, that amazing airport and amazing uh, retail space that's opening up. The Louis Vuitton store um, is just exceptional, absolutely exceptional. So, and, you know, Tab's got numerous other plans in the airport there. So very, very excited. And my, uh, you know, my only advice is get over there and see it. Absolutely. It's it's a, a strange kind of coincidence, really, I suppose, that these two operations, Qatar Duty Free at Hamad International and China Duty Free Group in Hainan Province, that have been the two bright lights I would say, on the airport scene and on the downtown duty-free scene through much of the nearly three years of pandemic that we've been through. Those have been the shining stars. There's no no question about it. And both of them 
within days of one another, you know, raising the bar to a whole new level. And that's that's got to be really exciting for us as an industry, don't you think? Yeah, 100%. And I think it's the scale as well, you know, because let's not forget, these things weren't just built six months ago. This investment and building continued through a pandemic. So you've got to take your hat off to both of, um, you know, those organisations that they carried on. You know, we've seen a lot of projects shelved um, during the pandemic. Um, the fact that these guys had the conviction and continued to build and develop these projects so that now we're back in a, you know, we're virtually back in a sort of a pre-pandemic position. And in some instances above that, the fact that we've got these two huge projects that are coming for our industry is just fantastic. And, you know, huge kudos to those two, um, to, to, to Qatar and, uh, and those guys in Heinen. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just about the expansion project at, at Hamad International either. Um, you know, Qatar Duty Free has been, been opening shops at some rate and, and new F&B outlets across the South Node, across the North Node in the existing space. So, you know, they've, they've, had, the, they've had the courage to do that and, they, and they've put the investment behind that courage. So uh, I think we've got to, we've got to uh, you know, doff our caps to them. Very, very impressive. So we'll watch those two developments um, with great interest, Roger. We'll no doubt report on them uh, in, in coming days and look forward to that. But meantime, we've got a guest to bring in, um, a fascinating man with, um, again, connections to you. You know a lot of people in this industry, I've got to say, from, uh, from co-hosting this program with you. Uh, and we're going to go into the world of wine today with a character that uh, is working for a very, very fine and very big wine company. Should we bring him in? Yeah, let's do it. So this episode's special guest on Tripod is Martin McKinnon, Regional Sales Director, EMEA, and General Manager, Global Travel Retail for Accolade Wines. Now, Accolade is one of the world's biggest wine companies but it's also one of its best with what I would call a, a really eclectic portfolio of more than 50 brands ranging from Mudhouse in my native New Zealand, lovely wine from a lovely country, to Hardy's, Grant Burge, St. Hallett, Banrock Station from Australia, and some modern brands that are really shaking up the global landscape, including the amazing Tasmanian sparkling wine House of Arras, which I tried and can the other day on the accolade stand and the evocatively named jam shed and many many more well mm. martin another martin and as we were just saying offline another mm welcome to tripod yeah thanks martin good to see you and good to see roger again as well great great it's great to be here all right good very good to have you with with us martin i'm gonna hand over to to roger to take you through the first part of the program um, and then we'll come back and later in the program, we'll have some fun and take you to our resident uh, duty-free desert island. So, Roger, let's kick off proceedings. Hey, Martin, thank you for joining us. Hey, Roger, good to see you. Good to see you too. I think we always start off early days, take you back to where it all started. So could you just give us a bit of an overview of what where you grew up, education, yeah. just so we get to know a bit more about you? Yeah, sure. I like the cap that Martin's just put on, by the way. Very good. Yeah, um, yeah of course. So um, I was uh, I was born in Scotland. 
So I lived in Scotland until I was 10 years old. So um, I think thinking back, I actually moved around quite a lot in Scotland. So I was at, I was at five different primary schools, um, which um, I hadn't really realised until I was thinking about it the other day. But yeah, quite, quite a lot of moving around. But we ended up moving to Lancashire. So a place called Chorley in Lancashire, in Lancashire. Uh, not so far from where you grew up, Roger, I think as well. Um, so I went to um, went to the end of primary school there, then high school. Um, the, the one thing I remember about landing there actually was going to school on the first day and speaking in, a, in what was then a thick Scottish accent and that uh, no one could understand what we're saying. So that was quite amusing. I think it was called Haggis for the first few months um, in a kind of affectionate way. So um, I tried to keep my accent, but eventually it kind of changed a bit, as you can as you can tell. But I guess that became home. So I kind of went to high school in Lancashire, went to college there, and you know met a lot of good friends. A lot, a lot of the friends I met at school there are still my best friends today. Um, and then went across to Leeds to go to university. But before doing that, I had a year out. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So um, I guess quite a few of my friends went traveling for a year, but I decided to do some work. So I went to work for um, a Rover car dealership uh, in sales. So did a year doing that, which was like a really nice grounding. So learned some basics about selling, about business, um, and kind of figured out roughly that I wanted to go and work in business and quite enjoyed sales. So I did. Um, I went to Leeds and did business studies, um, and uh, really enjoyed that. And then from there, kind of started my career, I guess. And I didn't know. We've obviously met Martin. We've known each other. 15 years and I didn't know that about you that you were a car salesman so uh, yeah there we go yeah there we go so you've obviously you've been a car salesman you've gone to university you've graduated Mm. tell us about how you first got into alcoholic drinks I guess with Scottish and Newcastle first and Allied de Mac yeah well so I remember being in Leeds and I I got into my last year of university and I knew roughly what to go and do sales to have a bit of experience in it I remember it was when the, the Times newspaper still had like Thursday job supplements. So I remember opening that one day and seeing this big ad. And it had like, a, I think, a, a can of Foster's, Cronenberg, Beck's, brands like that. And they were advertising for kind of sales grad jobs. So I thought that sounds perfect. So I was lucky enough to get that and um, joined that business straight out of university. That's a really good training. And got, um, got Leeds as my territory. So I was looking after the on-trade for Leeds. And um, you can imagine, uh, you know, early days there, just going, I remember, I remember the first two or three calls I did on my own really well, walking into pubs with my laptop or presenter um, and trying to speak to the landlord with all the punters sat at the bar, kind of giving you abuse, asking you for T-shirts, all that stuff. So um, I, spent, I spent some time doing that. And I think, you know, looking back, it was an incredible grounding. So not not just from a kind of work perspective around just like, you know, basic selling skills, commercial skills, um, just kind of try to build resilience, build confidence in that kind of environment. So it was a really great start. And I wanted to then go and do some marketing. So I ended up working for Allied Demec. So I spent a couple of years there, did some kind of trade marketing, customer marketing, which is really enjoyable as well. Um, and then I guess at the time, I kind of probably saw Diageo as the, the big sexy drinks business. Um, and a job came up there and uh, I kind of jumped to that chance. And I guess um, I guess certainly for a good period of my career, I found my home there. So I stayed there for 12, 13 years. And it's an amazing business. Um, and I was lucky enough to have several jobs there um, over, over the course of time. And obviously work with you, Roger. We did, yeah. We worked together, Martin, for a couple of years together, actually. I don't know if you know that, so... Yeah, I was looking. I was. I was looking back. Um, 
this morning actually on LinkedIn. It was about 15 years ago we worked together now. So it was uh, scary, how, scary how time flies. What I always remember is um, we were due to meet, uh, you'd said to me, let's meet in Edinburgh. So I drove over from Manchester and Martin, that's about, uh, Martin Moody, that's about two and a half hours drive. And I set off one night and the worst snow I'd ever faced fell that night. And I was due to meet Martin uh, for dinner at about 8pm. And I had about two hours and I must have moved about five miles. And I genuinely thought I was going to die that night or get stuck on that road over to um, over to Scotland. But I remember getting there and we both got a pint of Guinness and it must have been the best tasting Guinness I've ever had in my life. Well, I remember it well because I was it was about midnight and I was ready for bed and you were desperate for a drink after the long journey. So yeah, yeah it was yeah. good. But yeah, Roger and I were responsible for um basically looking after kind of entree route to market, people like Matthew Clark, Carlsberg, Coors. Um so I think I think we had some success, but we definitely had some fun as well. Um good. but yeah, I had a had a great a great career at Diageo. You know? It was really good, really good periods. And I know towards the end of your Diageo career, you actually went into the Diageo wine business, which was called Percy Fox at the time. Um, so you had you got a taste of wine then. What sort of tell us about that and what you found? Because obviously you'd always been on the spirits and beer side of the um, business, and to move over to wine at that point. Yeah, so I think I think roughly speaking, it was half and half. So probably six, seven years in spirits, beer, then the second half in wine. Um, and I remember, I mean, I, I guess I, I did several jobs in Diageo, like, like you did, Roger. And when I think about the spirits business, I, I kind of think about two bits of it in terms of my own learning. So the first bit, or most of the first bit, was like managing sales teams. So I was managing field sales teams. I was quite young, so I was like mid-20s. I remember, I remember being given a job, um, kind of first people management job in Scotland, looking after field, field sales team in Scotland. So I thought that's amazing, uh, but then I remember driving up there and thinking, um, I'm not really sure if I'm if I'm cut out for this because I had I had my team that I was going to meet. I had grads in there that were brand brand new at university. I had guys in there that were kind of 30 years sales experience. So I remember th- I had a kind of moment of thinking, I'm not I'm not really I'm not really competent to go and deliver this. So I think that that kind of first challenge of figuring out not just managing myself, how to then go and manage other people and kind of build relationships and flex your style, all, all that kind of thing, I think was a big a big learning curve for two or three years. And then working with you, Roger, we, we did, we I guess, you know, getting into some some fairly serious accounts for the first time. And with it being Diageo, we were important to customers. And um, you had to figure out fairly quickly um, how to kind of understand the really complex setup, how to build a value proposition, how to lead a negotiation. All of that stuff was like a really great learning ground. And we obviously had great support as well. But yeah, I guess um, I, I, I spent quite a period there and I was curious just to try something a bit a bit different. And then the thing, the thing in one came up, I went across there and was leading their cash and carry team, my first job there. And I think that kind of grew over the period of time. And then I, I was doing, as well as that, I was doing, I was doing impulse. Then I started doing discounters, um, e-commerce, I had Ireland as a market. So I think the time I left there, I was, I was looking after a good, a good part of, of the business. Um, but I think what attracted me to going over there, actually, um, I didn't realise quite how big a change it would be at the time. We'd, we'd been looking after, obviously, brands like Smirnoff and Guinness and Gordon's that were, that were kind of 70%, 80% share in the categories. 
Um, so really kind of big, powerful brands. And then going over to wine, we, ha we had some great brands. So we had like Blossom Hill, Yellowtail, kind of leading brands in the UK at the time. But wine's, wine's very different. So it's very fragmented because consumers like to experience variety in that category. So I think I think the commercially it's very different, and um, you know Blossom Hill I think was five percent share of the market, biggest biggest wine brand in the country. So I moved from a place of really trying to figure out how to sell more of must stock brands, as I see it, um, to make sure that we stayed listed or got listed. So the commercial kind of challenge was very different, and almost felt a bit more a bit higher risk uh, because things could go wrong very quickly if you didn't get it right. But also there was big opportunity if you got it, if you got it, if you got it in the right place. So that was a big learning experience. And I guess the other thing that was different, um, Martin mentioned wine earlier at the start. I think, um, I mean, it, wine is obviously an agricultural product because it's made from grapes. So every year you have a very different supply chain uh, set up in terms of the harvest and what's available. So you have to balance that kind of commercial challenge of figuring out what you've got and then go and make, make it turn that into a proposition for customers. And because it's a fragmented category, it's, um, it's fairly thin margins relative to some of the categories. So commercially, it was a really big learning experience, but I really enjoyed it because it's a great product, like spirits, lots of heritage, lots of romance, but commercially, yeah, really interesting. So I stayed there. I stayed there for kind of six years in that part of the business, but because, because of that move, I guess, looking back, um, the time at Diageo went by in a flash. And as well as having a lot of different jobs, uh, I felt like I was working in two businesses because of that change, which is you know really really good. And then we get to a big change in your life. You've been in alcohol for your whole career, and then you go to Kimberly Clark, and we'll get onto Royal Caribbean, which I guess is one step back into where we all are now. You know, how did that come about, and what was that like? A complete different change. Yeah, so I think, um, I guess, probably from halfway through the edge, I was thinking, I love working in drinks, and maybe that's where I'll be for the, in the future. But I wanted to go and experience something a bit different, just to get some breadth and just to kind of grow some different skills. And it, to be honest, it took longer to go and do that than I, I probably expected. And that was that was just because I was enjoying the edge so much. And there was, I was always lucky enough to get another opportunity that came up. Um, so when we, we sold the wine brands in the end at the Edge, um, you remember, Roger. Um, so there was a natural point there where I could go back into spirits so I could go and do something else. So I chose to go and work for Kimberly Clark. And I guess the reason I went there, you know, if I wanted to do non-drinks, I wanted to go quite far the other way in FMCG. So obviously non-food as well. Um, and they're big kind of big F FMCG brands. They have brands like Andrex, Kleenex, Huggies. Um, and the, the category dynamics, as you can imagine, uh, are very different to alcohol. So very price elastic, um, big old label presence in that category. So I guess built a lot, built a lot of different skills there. Um, and that, that move was a planned move. I kind of went, went into that intentionally. And the other thing that I did there at Kimberly Clark, um, I went in doing some similar channels, actually. But I managed to kind of do a couple of different sales director roles there that gave me some stuff that I didn't have. So, for example, I hadn't managed Tesco. So I had, I had Tesco as part of one of my roles uh, around their own label business as, one of my, as part of one of my roles. So I got some different things from a channel perspective that I'd kind of not, I hadn't done. So, yeah, so that was great. And um, I guess if that was a planned move, the, the move to Royal Caribbean was, was completely unplanned, if I'm, if I'm honest. Um, I was really enjoying Kimberly Clark, probably saw myself staying there for, for some time. And I, I got a call from a headhunter, actually, as, as you do with these things. And he said, are you interested in moving into travel? Uh, and I said, not really, no, I'm fine where I am, thanks. 
And he said, well, can I send you the jobs back? Because I think it's, it's really interesting. So I said, yeah, send it over, I'll have a look. So he sent it over, got the jobs back. And it was just really, um, it was a really glossy, well put together jobs back. And it was just really exciting. Um, so I went into a, a kind of conversation about it in a fairly informal way, to be honest, thinking I'll go and, I'll go and speak to these guys. And as I, as I met people there, um, A, I really like the people, but B, I just thought the, the, the challenge of doing something else in consumer goods, but outside kind of FMCG um, was really interesting. So yeah, I went, I went, I went and did that, which, um, which was, was very similar in some ways, but also very different in some other ways as well. And then step back into alcohol drinks, how, how alcoholic drinks, how did that come about? Yeah, so um, I, I, guess, I guess also slightly unplanned, um, but uh, I remember it really well, actually. It was kind of, um, I was on a ski trip. It was February 2020, and um, it, was, it was actually a work trip. Um, COVID was just starting to happen. Uh, so we started having to cancel cruises in different places. So I was having to get involved in that. But at that, at that point, it was fairly minor. Then kind of fast forward two or three months and cruise was cancelled. So I was I was kind of two months into that and probably actually the busiest I've ever been in my career because you can imagine we were kind of figuring out how to refund basically millions of holidays and how yeah. to manage a team that was a sales team that couldn't sell anything. So like super busy and um, you know, to be honest, had done no thinking about whether whether I could stay and all the rest of it. But I happened to get a call about a job at Accolades um, and the timing was perfect because um, I think I, I was I clearly realised that cruise was going to be in a tough spot for a couple of years. And I did want to get back into drinks at some point. So um, I think I got a call on the Monday. I probably had a conversation every day that week. And by the Friday, I'd agreed to join. Um, and it was quite a nice, um, quite a nice role to come into because I, I wanted to do some non-UK stuff because I'd done lots of UK um, kind of roles, but hadn't done anything international. So um, the way the way uh, I kind of joined was, was really doing two jobs, and we evolved it in a certain way. But I've I've got two jobs here. I've been here two years now. But um, so I'm regional sales director for EMEA, so Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Um, so that's our domestic businesses. So I have a team kind of spread across the region with with the sales team beneath them, and we manage that business, which is critical for us. And then the other part, of course, was being GM for travel retail globally. Um, so of course I, I joined knowing that was going to be a slow start, but it wasn't the only thing I was doing. So that was that was completely fine. So I was in quite a nice position that I could I could work on the travel retail stuff and figure out strategy and get make sure we had the right team in place, but really focus on the the domestic stuff. Um, so it's been like a really amazing journey in the last two years. Uh, I mean, as you can imagine, I mean I joined during COVID, so it was a slightly weird first six twelve months, as I knew it would be, because I was managing people across that region and globally and I couldn't meet them couldn't meet clients couldn't go into stores all of that stuff so it was I was like kind of chomping at the bit to get out and about so I guess you had you had those periods as things reopened a year or so ago that was like jumping on planes doing COVID tests everywhere getting out and about and then the last I guess the last six to 12 months has been much more let's say, um, enjoyable and effective because I've been doing a lot of traveling and obviously getting that proper to see people and, and meet people. Yeah, me and Martin uh, Moody, you have to say his surname because obviously you've both got the same initials. Um, we're both lucky enough to have been in Cannes last week and to spend time um, with your team, Jeff, 
uh, and the rest of the team there and seeing your amazing trade show stand and it looked fantastic. So, you know, big congratulations from our side. It looked really great. How have you found uh, travel retail? Because I know it's the first time you've had it in, um, you know, in your career. How's that been? And what, you know, what do you see as the differences between uh, travel retail and domestic? Yeah, so I think, I think the first thing to say is I found it very welcoming. Um, some people said before I got involved in it that it's, it's very much a community and everyone knows each other. I think that's true to a degree because there are lots of people that are kind of travel retail stalwarts, but equally there's lots of people that come through as part of their career. But whatever, whatever you're doing in travel retail, I think it's very welcoming. It feels very much like a community and a family. So I think that's one thing. And I think that that is true across kind of across supply side, retail, operates etc so i think that's that's really nice um i think the other thing and i clearly realized this to a degree before coming in but the other thing and what's particularly exciting for us as a brand owner of course is that it's it's um, probably the best opportunity in the world to showcase brands um so as well as being able to sell good amounts of volume in certain places um the brand showcase particularly in places like key airports is clearly best in class and then where we've been able to get good visibility we are very excited about what that means for the millions of people that can see our brands. Um, so in terms of sampling and experiential, it's, it's hard to buy that kind of focus. So in terms of the role the channel plays for us, as well as obviously trying to sell some wine, um, it's that kind of brand building consumer piece that is, that is critical. Um, but I've also been really impressed about the way the, the kind of trades um, has dealt with the, the kind of, um, I guess, adversity we've had. So, you know, coming from travel, I've seen it on that side as well, but it's, it's hard to imagine anywhere that was more effective. Um, and big parts of the channel, you know, even at the worst times of COVID, couldn't really close down because there were certain things that had to keep on ticking over. So I think the way people have um, faced into that, the resilience, the, um, the empathy, um, and the kind of team spirit has been like, really amazing to see. Um, but yeah, look, I, think, I think from our perspective as a brand owner, and particularly someone in wine, um, it's particularly exciting. And the way I look at it certainly is uh, from a wine perspective, I think as a category, we're, we're, we're underrepresented. Um, so we've got, we've got plenty of opportunity to try to inspire the change to improve that. So I guess what I mean by that, if you look across, let's say the average domestic market, wine is typically maybe 30% value within alcohol. Spirits are similar, beer is similar. You look at um, duty-free, of course, where the spirits companies have done an amazing job and it's clearly a really obvious benefit to spirits and duty-free, but wine's got around about a 10% share. So particularly at the premium end, there's lots we can do as a category to really add value to retailers, inspire consumers. So we've got a job to do there. And then probably slightly more selfishly as accolades, um, historically, certainly beyond before COVID, our share of, of uh, travel retail has been too small. So even within that share that does exist, we haven't played the role we can play. So some of the brands that Martin kindly mentioned at the start, there's much more we can do. So I guess during COVID, uh, the team have been focused on trying to be really supportive of retailers. And we've been lucky enough, um, despite the rebuilding that's been gone, lucky enough to have some really good wins and progress in some key locations. So yeah, we're focused on, focused on continuing that journey, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's no question, Martin, the category um, historically was shockingly underrepresented. And I think I think that's changed a lot in recent years. I don't know what you think, Roger, but 
Martin, the other Martin, he, he, he's right, it's still underrepresented, but you see more and more travel retailers now giving it the kind of focus and particularly the premium focus you, you talked about just then, Martin. I flew out of uh, Nice Airport, like most people. I thought they did a great job, mainly on local wine, as you'd expect, awesome. and, and of course, pretty much, pretty much all French, but you'd expect that. But, you know, a lovely, lovely range of rosés, for example, so synonymous, you know, with that region. And then I came through Dubai International on the way, DXB, on the, on the way back here to Hong Kong. And I think Sharon and the team have done a damn good job there. I think one of their arrivals stores, I'm not sure which uh, term, uh, terminal it is, Roger, but I think it's outstanding on wine. Yeah. And the departures <clears throat> offers pretty, pretty good too. So it's good to see that more and more retailers have, have bought into the premium opportunity you mentioned, but also the diversity of the opportunity. Yeah, completely right. Completely right. And um and we 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 don't we don't want to be too snobby about wine, even travel retail, because if we look at I don't know, I'm sorry, in the UK, we've got a very mainstream domestic business here. So brands like Hardy's and Echo Falls, that are you know top ten global wine brands, we should absolutely be selling them in travel retail, um, and then find finding a way to make sure we add value at the top end of the category with with premium in the right place. So that's the journey that we're on. But I agree, Dubai is a great example. I agree. I was in Dubai um, about a month ago and passed through the airport, and it looks looks fantastic. But you're completely right. I think even in the last six months, there's been um, a real increase in visibility of wine in some of these key some of these key locations. Yeah, Martin, we've all kind of had our wine journeys in life. I I probably remember the first bottle I had that really kind of signal to me you know this 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 is a great beverage um tell us about your wine journey uh, would you call yourself a wine aficionado or uh, or have any particular areas of interest countries varietals for example yeah so i guess I, I wouldn't say i was a wine aficionado and i got into wine not because i wanted to get into wine i guess i got into wine because i was really i really enjoy working in consumer goods and branded goods and I found alcohol and then wine to be a really dynamic category where the, you know, the consumer, let's say the consumer kind of levers that you need to pull are very diverse and, and actually very exciting. Um, I, re I really enjoy the category from the perspective of, you know, consumer wise, it's not just about functional benefits, it's emotionally a category that people love to shop in. So I think that bit like spirits, um, I, I got into it for those reasons, but as I've got into it, uh, because it's an amazing um, category with like huge heritage, lots of romance. Um, I've definitely really got into wine. And I think one of the things that um, we talk about at Accolade is being custodians of some great brands. So a brand like Hardy's and Newman's, it's about 150 years old. So you feel very much part of that journey and you feel a responsibility to kind of look after the brand and pass it on in a better, a better state. So I think from a kind of work perspective, you've got that kind of, thing in your head but i think just as a consumer um i mean i've just i'm just back from south africa for example we've got we've got five brands over there including kamala and flagstone i was lucky enough to spend a day with customers at our flagstone winery um and every time we go there i say to the winemakers just speak to me as a consumer because i want to just understand it as a consumer and it's just fascinating the whole production um journey and everything else is just fascinating but i think i think from a, a kind of accurate perspective in terms of my favorite varieties and that kind of stuff 
I really enjoy kind of the fact that we've got this really vast portfolio. So at, let's say at the mainstream end, uh, I get really excited about um, when we launch a brand that is a, a big consumer success. So brands like Jamshare and Mudhouse that we're now selling you know, millions of cases of, uh, of, a few years ago, those brands didn't, didn't exist. So those kind of marketing consumer stories that we find the right kind of consumer need is, is really exciting to me. But then, of course, at the top end of the, um, the category, we've got all these amazing premium wines. And even, even in one country, Australia, we've got brands like Grant Burge, Aris that you mentioned, Petalumas and Hallett. So it's, um, it's amazing, you know, when you go on the staff shop, choosing some wines to sample, it's amazing to kind of sample those things. I think me personally, I really enjoy like a, a kind of heavy, rich red. So some of the Grant Burge reds, I really enjoy some of the kind of the, the higher, higher end of that. Um, Flagstone in South Africa, where I'm just back from, we've got what we call an icon range, some really nice reds there, so Music Room, uh, Dark Horse, um, uh, wines like that. So yeah, it's um, it's amazing sampling them all. We'll be around to your place one day soon by this by the sounds of it, Martin, Roger and I. Uh, it is a fantastic portfolio. I, I, I tasted, remember you bring out a, a kind of collection every year of some of your outstanding Australian wines, for example. And I remember uh, going through the range um, a couple of years ago, just before I headed out here to Hong Kong. And I was just, you know, staggered by the quality, such, such fine wines. All right. Well, look, just before we, we have a, a bit of fun, I'm just going to go back on your career. You told us about being quite a fascinating journey. Any key influences or mentors along the way? Oh, well, yeah, um, there's lots of stuff we could talk about. I think, um, let me talk, let me mention a, maybe a more personal one and I'll, I'll, I'll choose a work example. So I think um, when, I, when I think about my career and kind of, I guess, what my values are, what's influenced me, I think a lot of it comes from my parents, probably like a lot of people. Um, so particularly my mom. So my mom passed away, sadly, I think 13 years ago now. She, she had cancer and passed away. Um, but when I was growing up, I mean, we moved around a bit. My dad was working. My mom kind of had part-time jobs. Um, so she wasn't really a, a business person. But the two things she always said to me when I was kind of going to school or going out the door were um, do your best um, and look after your brother. So I've got a younger brother. Um, so I guess, I, guess, I guess the way I, let's say, adopted or took those bits of advice were um, be your best every day. Um, so clearly you can't do a good job every day, but be your best every day and um, try not to worry too much about what you can't control. Um, so just try to show up um, in that in that kind of mindset. And then in terms of look after your brother, I, I take that as just be, be kind to people, be generous to people um, and try to support people. So I think I think those two values are so do, doing the best I can and really trying to trying to trying to support my team and, and give them something back. Uh, I guess is what what's underpinned the way I try to work and, and the way I go about my business. Um, I guess from a work perspective, I've been really lucky. I've had some good mentors. I've had um, lots of good line managers. I'll, I'll give you one, one example of a mentor that I have, which is relevant to this channel. So going back a few years now, um, I had Andrew Cowan at the Edge as my mentor for a year. It was part of one of the leadership programs I have there. And um, he was the managing director for the Edge GB at the time. And he's obviously now leading their, their travel retail business. Um, I remember the first mentor kind of discussion I had with him. He asked me to talk about my development plan. Um, so I, I did that for five minutes and I thought I did quite a good job of kind of bringing that to life. Um, and he then said to me, what about your strengths? 
uh, and I realized that I just talked about all the stuff that I wasn't very good at and was trying to improve. And I then tried to talk about my strengths and couldn't articulate it at all. Um, and it sounds like really basic, but it was a real kind of aha moment. And I was managing teams at that point, and I kind of realized that I was focused on what people were not good at and trying to improve that. But then when those things became strengths, just not focusing on that anywhere near enough. So I did a couple of things. I did something called um, Gallup Strengths Finder. So it's one of these things where you, put, you, you fill in lots of detail questionnaires and it gives you your kind of key strengths. So I then, I then kind of spent time on that piece. And I guess from there, that's been one of the things that's really shaped how I manage teams. So um, I've, I've always found since then that if you focus on what people are good at and the, the two or three key things that they have as strengths and find out how you can maximize that and help them build their impact through that, I think that's a fundamental um, thing to building engagement and building strong teams. And of course, um, then finding out what's the one thing that you want to develop and get better at. But I think until that point, I had it the wrong way around. Uh, so that, that's, that's just one example. But I've had lots of good kind of um, mentors and coaches that have helped me on various things that have hopefully made an impact on what the way I, the way I work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, abs very, very interesting. Martin, it's been a, a fascinating kind of journey through your, your early days and, and, and a career that's been diverse and is clearly on uh, a very exciting trajectory right now. Uh, we're going to take you on a different kind of trajectory. We're going to fly you on board Tripod Airlines, our new Roger Jackson, Martin Moody, low-cost carrier, exceedingly low-cost, Martin, I've got to say, so you'll have to buckle yourself in tight. It's going to be a bumpy ride. We're going to fly you all the way to our resident desert island. It does have duty-free status, as you'd expect of us, and we're going to give you a few creature comforts while you're there. So I'm going to hand over to Roger to give you a few options. So Martin, it'd be, uh, Martin, it'd be amiss of me not to start with our own category. So you're allowed one duty-free item. However, given the job you've got, what one item of your own would you pick? And what other item in the alcohol category would you would you pick for the desert island? Okay, very good. Well, I hope we also have something, one of our wines is a pouring wine on the uh, in the economy cabin on the, the tripod outlines as well. I think um, we're a bit too cheap for that, Martin. I'm not, uh, <laughs> fair enough. So I think um, I think for my portfolio, given this a desert island, and I'm imagining it's very warm and sunny and tropical, uh, I'd go for a nice crisp Sauvignon Blanc. So I think Mudhouse Sauvignon Blanc um, is a beautiful wine just to sip and relax in the sunshine. So I'd definitely choose that. I think elsewhere, I'll, I'll stay in alcohol, um, given my career. So I was lucky enough, um, obviously, working at Diageo to experience lots of whiskey. And I really enjoy, even though I was working up in Scotland, actually visiting distilleries. And um, I really actually like the kind of West Coast island whiskies and some of the really peaty kind of complex whiskies. So I choose something like Lagavulin. So I went to their distillery a couple of times on Isla. Um, so I've got really fond memories of that, but it's also a great whiskey. So I think I'd have, I'd have, have, have one of those to sip. Good choice. So along with your wine and your whiskey, what music would you take uh, on the island? <clears throat> oh, wow. Um, so I think I like uh, all sorts of music. I think um, I really like kind of indie rock type stuff. Um, so I'd, I'd probably something like Manic Street Preachers. So I think it'd be hard to choose an album, so I'll just choose their greatest hits album and take, and take that with me. Okay, so we've got your music, we've got your wine, we've got your whiskey. <laughs> Finally, what uh, bit of reading would you take? It can be a book, poem, what would you, what would you take to read? 
Oh, wow. Um, well, I really enjoy reading autobiographies. I find it really interesting. Uh, one that I read recently, which I thought was a really good read, but also really interesting, was Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm not sure if you've read it. No. Um, so I think, I think, firstly, a really good story, obviously, about sport, movies, politics, but also just, like, fascinating, because you think about his journey and his story. Um, he was born in uh, Austria, a young guy, and his vision was to move to America. And he decided that the way he could do that was to get into bodybuilding because he was big. So he thought he could maybe be a, be a bodybuilder. So he set himself the ambition of being the biggest bodybuilder in the world, which he, which he achieved. He then got to America and he decided he wanted to be a movie star. So set himself the ambition of being the biggest movie star in the world, which he achieved. And he then, he then wanted to give something back. So he wanted to get into politics. And then within a few years, he was... He was obviously governor of California, which as a foreigner in the U.S. is the biggest job you can have because you can be president. So that, that his, his story is fascinating because he basically set himself like huge goals without having really any idea of how to get there. And then just finding a way uh, just through hard work and drive and determination as opposed to any, any particular skills. So I think something like that would be a good story, but also fairly inspiring to sit and read. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now, um... We're going to allow you some company now on the island, Martin. We're going to fly three special dinner guests. Uh, they can be from history or living living today. Anyone you want, any period in history from anywhere in the world. Who would your dinner companions be and why? Yeah, I saw this on, on one of the podcasts. It's a, it's a hard one. There's, there's so much choice. Um, so I think, I think to begin with, given we're on a desert island, we need some comedy. Um, and as a, as a Scotsman, um, I think uh, Billy Connolly is the, the master storyteller. So that's, that's the first easy choice. Um, and then beyond that, you know, big sports fan. So lots of, lots of options there. But I think, I think someone like Tiger Woods would be fascinating um, for all sorts of reasons. So clearly, um, in terms of breaking through into uh, you know, a white-dominated sport as a, as a black man, I understand that story and that journey and the barriers he had but also just yeah. to perform at the level he did for so many years um, and the drive and pressure and how he coped with that would be super interesting. But I guess also, he's also had some huge diversity, some huge adversity. Um, so it'd be, it'd be good to, it'd be fa well, fascinating to understand how he sees that, what his regrets are, how he came back from it and kind of that, that kind of journey. So I think that'd be really, really interesting. And then lastly, um, I'm just back actually from South Africa, I mentioned before. Um, so learning a bit about Nelson Mandela over there, which is a fascinating journey. So I think, I think he would be incredibly inspiring and interesting to spend time with. Um, obviously dedicated his life to fighting inequality um, to the point where he was imprisoned for almost three decades as a result of it. I think his response to that was, you know, instead of being bitter and angry, he came out and carried on the fight to the point where he became president, ended apartheid, and I guess as an old man realized some lifelong ambition. So I think, I think to understand how he carried on that fight in such, you know, under such pressure, and uh, you know, to the point where he was in prison for so long, would be would be really fascinating. Yeah, you've got a hell of a dinner party there, and uh, you know, Sounds you can good, imagine the ex exchanges between Tiger Woods and Nelson Mandela, for example. <laughs> you know what Nelson Mandela achieved in life paved the way for sports people like 
Tiger Woods, who himself, even in this comparatively modern era of when he started off, faced a lot of prejudice uh, yeah, in, in the US, as you, as you referred to earlier. And then, of course, Billy Connolly chipping in it with both of them. I'm not sure that I understand his accent, but what a, <laughs> what a great night it would be. Yeah, uh, exactly. I, I can translate, one. maybe. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, finally then, Martin, we've, we're we going to take you off the desert island. Um, again, flying um, in, uh, in the only class there is on tripod airlines, but we're going to take you anywhere in the world on a bit of a dream holiday, somewhere that's on your bucket list, always has been, and you 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 want to head there as your next destination. Where would it be and why? Well, I think the thing that I've missed most over the last few years with COVID is, is skiing. Um, we've got a couple of young kids. I live in, with my wife here in London. We've got a couple of young kids. And, um, they're kind of four in term, so maybe not quite old enough, but I think next year they will be. Um, I really love skiing because just being in the mountains, escaping from everything, being on the piste and forgetting about all your pressures is, is amazing. So the kids are at the point now where they're fairly fearless, uh, which might be dangerous, but it's probably a good time to uh, go and learn to ski. So I think I would, I'd get back out skiing. It's been, it's been three or four years since I've had a chance to do that. Sounds good. Well, well, we'll fly you there on Tripod Airlines. Martin, you've been a great sport. One Martin to another. I've really, really enjoyed the conversation. I'm going to hand over to Roger just to wrap things up. Yeah, thanks, Martin. It's been good fun. Martin, fun. thank you for being so open and actually sharing so much. I think uh, as someone who I would class as a friend and also someone I worked with for a long time, I've learned actually even more about you today, which I didn't expect. So thank you for being so open. We're really <clears throat> pleased you chose to come to Travel Retail and uh, we hope you're here to stay because we think, uh, you know, like you said at the start, I think there's a great opportunity for you and your brands, of course. Yeah, no, guys, thanks for having me. It's really appreciated. It's great to spend time uh, speaking to you both. Um, great to meet you properly, Martin. Great to see you again, Roger. And yeah, I think... Um, uh, it's a, a really exciting time in, in, in life, but particularly in travel retail. So good luck to everyone out there in travel retail and the industry. And we've got a very exciting couple of years ahead. And I think things will rebuild gradually. Um, but beyond that, I think we all recognize that um, in the longer term, the world is getting richer and, want, and wants to travel more. So the opportunity is definitely there. And we've got, um, we've got a, a good journey ahead. Well, we'll raise a glass of uh, fine accolade wine any of your brands to that thought that's a great note to finish on martin mckinnon thanks for being on tripod see you soon see you guys take care thank you well another great chat roger with yet another uh, fine man and, and fine personality in our industry i, I found his uh, career journey uh, very illuminating i thought his values as an individual uh, shone through very very strongly there and you heard his a poignant reference to his mum and the way she's shaped his life. You know Martin, of course, from from earlier. Um, very interesting and good individual, I thought. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes when you hear interviews or or you read things about people, like, are they really like that? The one thing I can vouch for Martin, he's exactly like that. He lives those values exactly as his mum asked him to. Uh, he is a kind individual. He's very good at his job. Um, his career has given him really significant breadth. Uh, and as we discussed, has gone left and right as well, you know, into uh, Kimberly Clark, into tissues and nappies. 
then on to Royal Caribbean as you know it really is he really has got breadth and you know not many I've always been in drinks uh, but he really has gone left and right to get different breadth and you're seeing that with the results that uh, you know Accolade are having not in just travel retail but in the globe at the moment and I think a lot of that's down to Martin and the team so um, yeah I'm very thankful he came on the podcast and he's a really good guy. Good. Great guest indeed. And we've got many more lined up for Series 3 as our journey continues. Roger, great to be with you as always. Uh, this is Martin Moody, ladies and gentlemen, saying see you next week. See you next week. Bye.